welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb Smith. And I'm Terrell Couch. And today, we're dangerously likely to suffer through the reality of the January 6th hearings. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. Okay, y'all. I have two above the folds for you today. The first one, I give you one chance to like talk a little bit more than normal. Now you just are trying to make it normal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there's been a ton of extreme weather this week. There's been violent thunderstorms around Chicago that may have created tornadoes. There's been insane flash flooding in Yellowstone National Park that quite literally took out roads and bridges. There's been record heat in many different states and fast spreading fires in the Southwest. All of this is fueled by a heat dome over the Tennessee Valley, Valley that will be parked there over the next couple of weeks, and it's made even worse by human-caused climate change. Terrell, the truth is we are living in the effects of climate change and have to do everything we can not to let it get worse. What are your thoughts about this? I was going to say, what do you mean? The weather's been beautiful in Idaho lately. Honestly, it's been pretty good in Boise. Yeah, especially what everyone's freaking out about. We were worried about a drought, <laughs> and we've actually gotten rain, which has been super awesome. Like, I don't know why you all are freaking out, because in my world, life is doing great. Um, no, this is terrifying, right? Yeah. Um, we're literally living in it. <laughs> like, right? I have friends who live in the Chicago area, and they heard um, tornado sirens for the first time ever. And... That's of course, freaky as hell. The resonant TikToker here. Oh my god! Um, someone recorded as they were on a boat tour as the sirens are going off, and you just see this very eerie scene of a city pretty much empty at that point because everyone's taking shelter because the storm's getting so bad, and these people just kind of floating out in Lake Michigan as the tornado sirens are going off. Like that's terrifying. Also. I grew up knowing or being told that it was highly unlikely for, dangerously unlikely, I guess, for Whoa. Chicago to ever have something of that magnitude due to the elevation and the sky rise and all these pieces. So I think, what, two or three episodes ago, we had a whole conversation of what happens when we get to the point of no return. And I, I think we're there. We're... or. Maybe I'm being too alarmist. No, I think we're, we're not. We're not there, but this is how it's. We're gonna seeing be. the effects this because is, this is how it's going to be. There's there's a point of no return. Yeah, but uh, this is how it'll be. Um, but also, we're we're now. seeing it not in the aspect that we've been um, taught to understand it. That's the best sure. way I can think of. Sure. Like Hurricane Katrina is well. This was the most extreme hurricane we've ever had because of climate change. It's only going to get worse from here. And then the next season, yes, there were very intense storms, but it seemed to not carry the same weight. Now we're seeing things like this massive heat wave that is decimating um, most of the United States. Some of the worst flooding Yellowstone has ever witnessed that is eroding very fragile areas that could potentially spark a volcanic eruption again being alarmist i know but a tornado in chicago like hail in um mexico city we are really truly seeing extremes and are it's hard to play into that narrative that like we did during a hurricane katrina or hurricane ida that this is a normal that we have to accept like this is bad yeah, I think you said it pretty well. I don't know if I have anything to add. That's um, a first. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, 
as we've mentioned a lot on this pod, like climate change is here. We are living through it. It's going to be pretty bad for the next few decades, but there is a point of no return that we haven't reached yet. Um, but the reality is, is this is what we're going to live through now for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it only gets worse. It doesn't get, it takes longer to get better, but in the, in the short term, it's going to be, it's going to only get worse. So we really have to do everything we can, uh, truly to not let it get there. Um, anyways, moving on to the story that literally everyone in their mom has been talking about, uh, on Saturday, 31 men associated with the white nationalist group Patriot Front were arrested in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, after police found all of them jammed into the back of a U-Haul truck on its way to the Pride event in one of the city parks. They were all geared up with riot shields, at least one smoke grenade, guns, and had with them an operations plan that outlined how they were going to incite violence at the Pride event mm-hmm. before rioting on the main street in Coeur d'Alene. Only two of the 31 men were actually from Idaho, with many traveling from different states like Utah and Texas. This one, admittedly, is a bit close to home for me. That is my hometown. Yeah. But it's not entirely surprising. Coeur d'Alene has had noticeable uh, white super- uh, has had a white supremacist what, history. 30 years ago? 20-ish? Was it 20? Somewhere. Um, I don't remember what year exactly. But... Uh, it wasn't really that long ago that the city came together to put an end to the Aryan Nations hate group that lived in the area. What I found interesting about this one, however, is that the vast majority of the group was not even from Idaho. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it was even more interesting that they decided to travel all the way to North Idaho to incite violence at a pride celebration in a place that already has many people that are against that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, the, whole, the whole thing is just kind of odd to me. It's interesting that they chose Coeur d'Alene. But you know, at the end of the day, I'm really glad they were stopped. Terrell, what are your, what's your take on this? I think you highlighted it well too, is it's interesting that they chose Coeur d'Alene, but for individuals who live in Idaho, it's not surprising. Yeah. Well, it, it, I will say that I think it's more, the fact that they chose Coeur d'Alene is more surprising than the fact that it happened in Idaho for me. See, I would say they're one and the same because the Aryan nations is still so fresh in a lot of people's minds, at least for me moving here. I own. I'm not from Idaho. Um, 20 years is not a long time, you know. I, it was invoked during this last legislative session because um, a part of Governor Little's Red Tape Act led to um, the National Guard looking to change militia laws and kind of loosen them up because they were too stringent. Um, yeah. And a lot of people spoke up about the Aryan Nation and how the the northern part of the state felt under that pressure and why the laws exist. I think for me, too, there's this struggle, obviously being a queer individual in the state. Yes, you feel threatened because it it's close, right? It's six hours away. But being an African-American in the state as well, I still recall and think about driving through downtown when a random Trump rally started. Um, I wasn't too far away when Ammon Bundy shut down a hospital because the hospital was kidnapping a child. Um, That was in quotes. They didn't actually kidnap a child. They did not actually kidnap a (laughs) child. Sorry. Um, That was very much in air quotes. Um, I experienced racism in Sun Valley when a neighbor called the cops and told them I was assaulting my friend. Like 
the idea of the intimidation factor that this is supposed to cause hits me very differently because I already operate in a space where everything is attempting to intimidate me. I'm not supposed to belong in Idaho because Idaho is this white flight of a place. Um, so I just struggle here because at the end of the day, I'm like, it's not going to change who I am or what I'm doing. It's, if anything, it makes me do it more. It makes me want to wear more crop tops and maybe start wearing glitter, like whatever's going to make them feel uncomfortable. Um, because for all the bad that I just highlighted with Idaho, I've also never seen such amazing activism and such care and concern towards recognizing that we can't let states like Idaho become that wasteland. It can't become a state that people from Texas and Utah just come to, especially with um, the rise of this movie or TV show, I should say banner under heaven under the banner of heaven. Some along those lines. Oh, is that the, uh, that's the Mormon documentary thing, which highlights Idaho and brings up all of these things as well. Like it, yeah, it's important to recognize that these things are happening. It's good that this is making national news, but I also think people need to pause in the white fragility that it might cause of, um, nervousness or caution there are probably people within your own circle who feel that same intimidation every day and still get up and still go out and still do the work and still show show that they matter and it's important to continue doing that because when we allow for these types of groups to intimidate us that's when they win absolutely let's check out the international fold continuing with our coverage on the russia ukraine war On Tuesday, the United States announced they would not push Ukraine to reach a ceasefire agreement with the Kremlin. A top official states they're going to set those terms for themselves. This comes after a steady series of tactical wins by Moscow in the Donbass region of Ukraine. As of today, June 14th, the embattled city of Severodonsk, where roughly 12,000 civilians remain, have seen all of their escape routes severed and bridges destroyed by Russian forces. Russia announced they would allow for a humanitarian passage Wednesday for civilians trapped in the um, chemical plant located in that city. This western region increasingly looking as though it will be under Russian control in the near future, um, especially as Moscow is claiming it has upwards of 90% of the region, we're seeing a lot of Western nations and states um, grow a little bit more concerned and anxious around what the exit strategy is going to look like for this conflict. Caleb, I know we bring this up in all of our episodes. I want to make sure that our listeners are aware. But as we reach month five or six, what are some of your takeaways or what are things that you're noticing in this conflict? Uh, well, it's very clear to me that Russia every single day um just looks weaker. I like, I think the thing that like we really have as a American people have to think when it comes to this conflict is like, it feels very far away. Yes, but it is a major, major, probably the biggest factor in terms of why we're being affected with high prices and inflation. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously what Russia has done to Ukraine is seriously they have seriously flattened the country in terms of destroying infrastructure and the loss of human life and the millions of people who have fled Ukraine. Ukraine will never be the same. Mm-hmm. It, no matter the outcome here, uh, 
there's, I think two things are true here. Ukraine will never be the same and Russia hasn't won this war. And I think that, you know, as a country that has this idea that we are the beacon of democracy, we are the beacon of the free world, you know, we need to stay in this along with our allies who are also supporting Ukraine in this dark time uh, uh, in, until the very end. And that, that end may never come. Um, war might come to an end, but in terms of getting Ukraine back to what it should be, is going to take many years and decades probably. Absolutely. And so like, I just think that I'm, I'm just so, I don't know. It's very upsetting that this happened at all. And there's not a lot that we could have done to stop it. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I think that our response has been very, very good. I think honestly, we're going to look back at this in time and history. And I think President Biden is going to go down in history as making some very, very well played decisions in this. And like, that's not necessarily what it's about. It's about um, a bigger regime believing that it has rights over people. And I think you bring up a good point there too, because as we speaking generally about Americans get consumed in our own lives, we do forget that the onset of how this conflict has lasted this long and why uh, a lot of the Ukrainian people are still able to fight for their country is because President Biden listened. And this isn't me trying to be an apologist for him, but just highlighting the fact that the international community did look towards this administration when they were sounding the alarms and saying all of these things were going to happen and essentially calling them alarmists and, and highlighting, well, Russia always props this up and talks this way. And because of that show of, of resilience and force by the administration, we have been put into a very different space. So as you, as you, our listeners start hearing more about Western nations being shaky about this conflict and being weary of this conflict, it's important to keep that context, I think, in mind that even entering into this and using the sanctions the way they have, that was all a strategic plan by this administration to put pressure on Russia, but it was never a, a true global front that people have now just assumed it's been. Circling the globe in under a minute, after 49 years, the quote-unquote friendliest of all wars has been settled between Denmark and Canada over the Hans Island a desolate rock in the Arctic between the two countries. Both have agreed to split the island with about 60% going to Denmark. On Tuesday, French President Emmanuel Macron pleads with his country to deliver his bloc a clear electoral victory. Um, as some of you might recall, he has been elected president and now France has gone into their somewhat complex um, parliamentary elections. Following the first round of those um, elections and voting. Macron's coalition is projected to win, but have fewer seats than previous years. In a bit of pride news, Rebel Wilson finds her Disney princess, if you will, sharing a lovely picture of her and her now girlfriend on Instagram. This is a significant move following um, a post from the Sydney Morning Herald that essentially owned up to the fact they let Rebel Wilson know they had a picture of her and her girlfriend and were threatening to release it in, in the coming days. And she was able to come out in her own way, share her own piece, and 
kind of give a middle finger to this news outlet that was holding her sexuality over her. And lastly, the European Union's court system has ruled um, in the favor of asylum seekers halting Britain from sending those asylum seekers to Rwanda. Recently, back in April, the United Kingdom government came up with a scheme to send some of their asylum individuals to Rwanda in an agreement with the African country and has been called out by multiple non-governmental agencies. This is seen as a big win, but the work is not done. Um, While this last minute legal challenge did come to ground the flight that would have sent seven asylum seekers currently to Rwanda, um, the ruling only allows for this pause to last for three months while they explore other um, legal opportunities. And we'll be right back. And we're back with Dangerously Likely. So in today's main segment, we're going to discuss the two January 6th hearings that have taken place since last week, if they brought any new information to the table, some reactions from organizations like Fox News, and what may come next. So first, let's give a quick recap of the first hearing from last Thursday. I think it's safe to say that what we saw in that hearing isn't really what, at least from what I've seen in the last several years, the norm of congressional hearings. We only Mm -hmm. heard two people from the committee talk in both of these hearings. That was Chairman uh, Benny Thompson and Vice Chair Liz Cheney. There was no grandstanding from members of the opposite party or anything like that. It truly was a very serious presentation of the facts that the investigation had yielded. In terms of new information, it was revealed that Trump directly said that Mike Pence deserves it in response to the chance of hang Mike Pence at the Capitol. Um, It was also revealed that Uh, Representative Scott Perry, who's a Republican from Pennsylvania, tried to get a pardon for his role in attempting to overturn the election, and that a number of other members of Congress that have not been named also sought pardons from Trump for their role in this. We saw Trump's former uh, Attorney General, Bill Barr, say that Trump's claims that the election was rigged um, were, quote, bullshit. And we saw new footage of the January 6th insurrection, mostly through the lens of a filmmaker that embedded himself with the Proud Boys during that time. Uh, And before we get on the questions, let's just play some clips to see how this played out a little bit. Donald Trump was at the center of this conspiracy. And ultimately, Donald Trump, the President of the United States, spurred a mob of domestic enemies of the Constitution to march down the Capitol and subvert American democracy. Any legal jargon you hear about seditious conspiracy, obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States boils down to this. January 6th was the culmination of an attempted coup. Over multiple months, Donald Trump oversaw and coordinated a sophisticated seven-part plan to overturn the presidential election and prevent the transfer of presidential power. You will hear about members of the Trump cabinet discussing the possibility of invoking the 25th Amendment and replacing the President of the United States. And aware of the rioters' chance to hang Mike Pence, the President responded with this sentiment, quote, maybe our supporters have the right idea. Mike Pence, quote, deserves it. 
I made it clear I did not agree with the idea of saying the election was stolen and putting out this stuff, which I told the president was bullshit. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to be a part of it. And that's one of the reasons that went into me deciding to leave when I did. I, what I saw was just a, a war scene. It, it was something like I had seen out of the movies. I, I couldn't believe my eyes. There were officers on the ground, um, you know, they were bleeding, they were throwing up, they were, you know, they had, uh, I mean, I saw friends with blood all over their faces. I was slipping in people's blood. Um, you know, I, I was catching people as they fell, I, you know, I was, it was carnage. It was chaos. Terrell, what was your initial reaction to this first hearing? Well, everything you just said was news to me because I watched off Fox News, and really it was only <laughs> Sean Hannity who was talking the whole time. Occasionally, writes Priebus and sometimes Stephen Miller. But all I saw was Liz Cheney in a nice little um, headline. No that audio that told me it was a partisan sham as I watched a Republican representative. Anyway, um, no, I I go back to what we were talking about before, right? <clears throat> I think for us, while there was some new information and also some very important individuals who were speaking, I assumed what our reactions would be. Every time I see those clips, I can make an assumption that it it has a negative impact because we we watched as American democracy very well could have ended that day. And there was a clear concerted effort to ensure that it ended that day. And we're, we're slowly learning more about it. Um, but I, even though I make a joke about Fox News, that's that's where I keep falling on is for a portion of this country, they got the bill bar treatment for a hearing, which I didn't think was possible. And the reason I, I invoke Bill Barr's name is this is exactly what he did with the Mueller report. He read it. He put out a memo of here's a Sparknotes version of what I think you should care about. There are no reason to do criminal charges. But for individuals who dug through it and actually did their due diligence to read, you actually see that Mueller did outline several opportunities to charge the former president and multiple people, multiple people in his administration. And what Sean Hannity did during prime time when Fox News was Sean Hannity, yeah, that was Tucker. No, it was Sean Hannity. Oh, I also thought Tucker Carlson was supposed to, but it was Hannity the whole night. The whole night, I swear I saw Tucker. Uh, well, whatever. I mean, are they really that different? It's um, two yeah. white guys who <laughs> want to burn down the country. Who cares? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um. <laughs> I mean, we should care. But Sean Hannity is implicated too. So I know that's what made it even funnier. Um, but what was so interesting, I guess, is the fact that they did split screen the hearing. They allowed for people to see it was happening, but they didn't show you any of the recordings. They didn't play the audio. They just got to say whatever came to their mind. And that's very scary for a country that believes this is going to fix the problems that we're seeing, the institution that we have. And I think the same question that we brought up at the end of our last episode around the Department of Justice, it becomes more intimidating for 
an attorney general Garland to move forward when the optics of arresting the former president will almost certainly lead to one of the bloodiest days this country has ever seen. Hmm. Yeah. I was going to also just ask, like, I think it's a good follow-up to what Fox news did during all this. How effective do you think these hearings will be? I want to push that back on you. Actually, how effective did you? No. <laughs> how effective did you feel? Because I, I'll also own. You got to watch the primetime one in its entirety. I missed the first half, if you will. I missed the second one. So, and I was going to say I saw the second one, which wasn't built for primetime, but I do think gave the most damning information that has hit Trump so far, mm-hmm. which I do think was a misstep for the the committee. I do think that that segment should also be should have also been prime time but i want to hear from you do you think it was effective do you think night one was effective i i do and i'll say well i mean i guess it depends who you're asking right yeah i i do um you obviously that's what i'm asking (laughs) (laughs) no i I just mean to to a broad swath of americans first of all 20 million tuned in which is more than the impeachment hearings got which is not bad at all but you know I think my impression of the whole thing on that night was like, I think the committee's goal was to get us back into it. It's okay. been almost two years. And so what they did is they came out, you know, they said some of their stuff. Um, and then basically what they did is they, they showed us footage of it again, but from a way different perspective of someone actually embedded in the Proud Boys who had undergone a lot of planning and knew exactly what they were doing Mm -hmm. and then highlighted them in videos uh, that were taken from the filmmaker that was embedded, but also from, you know, security footage of like how they were able to identify that the proud boys had a plan and all of them were literally following each other into the Capitol in certain areas on purpose. And I think that like seeing that stuff again, was a way to kind of jolt us back into, oh yeah, this was freaking serious. This was so serious. And like, like we almost actually lost like a lot more people than we did. Like this truly was an attack. It was an insurrection. And then the, the, the rest of the night, the committee talked about and showed testimony about how Trump knew he knew how much of this was false and yeah. yet he still egged it on in his ways. And we're still finding out more about that too. I think that my impression of this first night was to get us back interested into it. Hmm. And now I think what they're doing since it's kind of scattered, I think there's a couple more primetime ones and then there's like yeah. a few more that aren't primetime. So I think what they're doing is they're, they have that, they had it. Let's get American people back into this. And then some of the, stuff that we definitely it's a must to go over but it doesn't need to be prime time at least to them are happening on the non-prime time nights and then the prime time nights are there to truly tell the american people this is how what went down and this is what happened and i think thursday night last thursday night is what we saw that the beginning of that i think that's what's going on huh and i thought personally i thought they did a really good job of i thought it was a really like 
wait, they hired a producer for it. And I actually thought it went by pretty, pretty well and smooth. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was interesting as I highlighted before, like I'm not used to seeing a committee doing hearings and not having like one party just like grandstand the whole time or say terrible things, you know? Yeah. It was very much, it was only the chair and the vice chair that talked. It was only Liz Cheney and Benny that talked. And, um, you know, I thought they laid out the case very well. You know, I think it's compelling whether you agree with it or not. And I think there's a very good reason why Fox News didn't air any of that. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I don't know how effective it is, but I do think that in terms of like the mountain they have to climb to make it effective for every American is just ginormous and maybe impossible in some areas. Uh, I thought the first night was pretty good. Hmm. I appreciate that, that context too, because I mean, for you and I, obviously we talk about politics all the time. So it's hard to pretend as if January 6th is a distant memory, but I guess for the American public, it, that was a reminder of this is what happened over a year ago. This yeah. is, this is how traumatizing it was, how scary it was. I think it was very strategic too, because, because first of all, you advertise it like, oh, we've never seen this before. And now that automatically makes you a little bit interested in what's mm-hmm. going on. And then they show the footage. And I personally found it obviously very scary, but I personally found it very interested that they were like highlighting the proud boy people literally making their way to the Capitol through the crowds, through security cameras as well, backed up by the filmmaker mm-hmm. about where they were and where they were going. And that made it feel a lot more real to me, made it feel more real because like you knew they had a plan and if they had the chance, they would have killed someone. Yeah. Not that people didn't die and obviously our hearts go out to those people, but like I'm talking about- It like, could have been worse. We could have had lots of congressmen and women die that day. We could have. And the arrogance that comes from it, right? And this plays into day two a little bit more, but they had hired individuals to film them. Like- this is what I always get back to. Yeah. Because they think they're untouchable. I don't even think it's that. I really genuinely think that the conservative party has unlocked a Pandora's box and they don't know how to close it. They've, I don't think they're trying. Do you? I I think they want to. I think they want to try. Who, I think, is the question. Liz Cheney. Yes, but it's... I mean, Ooh. she has like two people around her that also Lisa agree. Murkowski. I would even argue argue Susan Collins has been trying to. And I think, I think there are conservatives who are, who want to. Um, But I, I think, I don't think it was so much that they had an arrogance that they were untouchable. I genuinely think that we are fighting two different realities in their mind. They were saving our country. And a lot of them feel that. And now that they're going through their consequences, (laughs) they're walking that back and trying to be apologetic because they think that's what's going to get them out of consequences. But at the same time, you have the man who's at the center of all of this, who you are slowly starting to see had the intentional, had the intentionality during his speech that day to incite people to want to do more because as we learned from day two, that's when he found out that Mike Pence was no longer going to even consider moving forward. So while you have these people stuck in this fake reality, you have someone and you have multiple people, i.e. Fox News, you're not innocent here, actively telling you, well, that reality is true. It's the deep state that won't let you. 
explore your reality or, or live that life. You have to save the world. So that I, I think it's also worth noting that the Proud Boys um, and other other militia groups like that also had experienced a massive increase in membership yeah. um, after Trump said, uh, stand, stand back and stand, stand by, by at the debate with Joe Biden before the election. And I mean, it lit- quite literally played out at the Capitol that day. Yeah, it not only did it play out at the Capitol that day, but we're we're still seeing those long term effects. We're still seeing this idea that you can travel to a state because there's a pride event happening and you mm-hmm. can just do things. It's that piece that is inherently scary and fearful. And I'm processing a little bit here because I, I am recognizing that this committee is doing a very strategic and important job of reminding the American public, remember how you felt that day. Ignore all the bullshit that you are now dealing with post January 6th, where the Republican Party essentially fell to its knees and acted as if, well, we can't do anything about it. Forget all of that. Remember the day itself. Remember it like you remember 9-11 or Pearl Harbor. Remember what happened and how you were shocked watching from your television at home or how you were shocked to find out that your neighbor was a part of this or how you were shocked to see them hanging off of the walls in the, um, in the Senate. Remember those pieces, because if you can get back to that place, you can finally start to see the truth. And uh, Maybe it's a strategic piece here, too, that they are staggering what's prime and what's not, because I, I'll argue I think day two should have been prime time. It got really into the weeds and talked about a lot of detail. But for an American public that hasn't moved to the point of understanding and fully recognizing what happened on Jan 6, of course you don't want that to be prime time because then you lose them. Then they're like, well, now they're trying to feed me details and they're trying to tell me all of these pieces versus, oh, yeah, that did happen. So. I, let's let's talk a little bit about the second hearing before we wrap this up. Um, the second hearing took place uh, this just just this past Monday, and I believe the next hearing takes place uh, on the same day that this episode comes out. So uh, watch out for that. Um, I don't know if that one's prime time or not. Um, but anyways, so kind of the, the new information that we got out of this, and feel free to add if I miss anything, Terrell. Uh, Trump was continuously told that the election was not stolen or rigged, but he did not listen. Bill Barr testified a lot during this hearing, debunking many specific claims Trump was making to Trump's face. This was also supported by the finding that nearly everyone around Trump knew he had lost fairly and that there was not sufficient evidence to overturn the result. Uh, We also found out that one of the people feeding Trump these outlandish claims was none other than a drunken Rudy Giuliani on election night. He only drinks Diet Pepsi, according to him. I think it was Pepsi, maybe Coke. Yeah, whatever. He really sought to influence and did. Uh, lastly, the committee has given us some laws that Trump may have broken, like witness tampering and things like that. But they added a new one to the list on Monday that Trump engaged in fundraising fraud. After the election, Trump raised $250 million for the, quote, official election defense fund, mm-hmm. uh, which, according to two Trump aides, actually did not technically exist. It was clear that the money did not go to what it claimed it did. Yeah. It just went to the general campaign fund, which I think we all kind of knew was happening. Well, let me rephrase well, that. I think we people who understand knew. politics did. 
recognize that. And yes, I know that probably sounds elitist, but it was a very clear ploy that if you understand how campaign finances work, it's not easy to just create a new fund and then start funneling money into it. It's not hard, but it's not that easy. No, and they're just trying to capitalize on the on these claims. The, That's it. The literal next day after a failed insurrection, a failed coup, this fund magically existed and there's just it was never plausible. Yeah. Yeah. Leading people astray. You can't do that. That's against the law. But do you think it's effective? I know you didn't get to see this part, and this is me speaking after watching day two. Do you think it's effective that the committee's trying to use that as a way of saying they also fooled and hoodwinked you? They lied to you. Do you think that's effective to this population, this group, that they essentially do need to sway? So I'm going to assume that the population has heard this, (laughs) that you need to sway. Um, I think that like, it's just hard to tell. I think some people are not going to believe anything. And I think some people might, but it's just very difficult to tell if they look on, if they're honestly looking at these hearings, they're watching them themselves and whatnot. I think they have a greater chance of understanding just what this day was and what happened and how maybe if they were contributors to this election defense fund in air quotes, um, then maybe now they'll, they understand a little bit of just the massive fraud yeah. that Trump was and how much he played a lot of people for his own power. I, I just, like I kind of said earlier, like, again, I, I unfortunately did not get to watch this, hearing but my what i suspect is that you know what um this one's not prime time um fundraising fraud okay like you got him i mean i what i mean is like i think that's boring and i think the committee knows that and i think the committee is going to present things in a lot more of a uh serious but i guess flashy might sound like it's fake but it's not like kind of flashy way during the primetime ones. Yeah. So I think it makes sense that we learn this kind of information um, in the hearing that took place on Monday morning versus primetime Thursday. Yeah. And I mean, we still have something to look forward to even out of these hearings because we know that they're going to continue to build off of them. Yeah. It's, don't get me wrong. Absolutely vital that the yeah. American people heard this. Uh, that this and was they're a hearing at all. Sound bites and news pieces, yeah. Yeah, and you can, and this is something I want to make clear. I don't know the exact URL, but the January 6th Select Committee has a website um, that you can view these hearings and these testimonies on because obviously like we are just analyzing some brief big takeaways, whereas there was some really powerful stuff I thought in the first hearing and in the second hearing in terms of how the committee is taking the testimony that they've gotten from so many people around Trump to make the case against Trump. And it's very powerful. Um, The Capitol police officer that testified on Thursday evening uh, during the primetime one, incredibly powerful, just the way that she described it. Like I never thought I was going to be in a battlefield. Mm -hmm. Um, I was like, I was literally slipping in the blood of my, of my fellow police officers at the Capitol because of what the rioters were doing to us. And I just like th- I think it's just very vital that um, if you haven't seen this stuff, like check it out and and watch it and and you know because obviously like 
you probably listen to this podcast because you enjoy our takes and stuff, but this is one of those moments where I think it deserves more than just listening to us. I think it deserves actually watching it too. And for once, Congress makes it easy. The website is January 6th, J-A-N-U-A-R-Y, the number 6, T-H, dot house, dot gov. Um, kind, of, kind of wrap us up here. One, two takeaways and one question I have for you. Um, as they continue to build, one of the bigger news stories that I feel like isn't getting the coverage it deserves is um, Liz Cheney very powerful with conviction announced to the world that there are several members of the house of representatives that reached out to the administration um, at the time and asked for pardons in the build up for oh, yes. Jan six, which Oof. is terrifying, right? There, <laughs> there came a point that some representatives recognized what they were getting into very much could lead to something criminal and felt the need to preemptively ask the president of the United States to protect them. And I don't think that's getting enough coverage, but I also know that we don't know exactly which I have a feeling we might be finding out soon. Yes. I'm assuming we're going to find it out prime time. But wrapped up in that, what do you think's missing from these hearings right now? I mean, we're watching videos sure. of Bill Barr. We've watched videos of Ivanka Trump. We know that a lot of other players are actively fighting subpoenas. But do you need one of those key players to be in real time answering questions? Or do you think the videos are doing enough? Do you think there needs to be a smoking gun? Or do you think the the lead up and the examples of all of the things that we can now start to connect are enough? Like, what do you think is missing from this hearing or from these hearings that the committee hopefully will do successfully? I think for me, that's difficult to answer because everything you just mentioned, we might be seeing in the next several of these, since there are a lot more like a smoking gun. I personally, I don't know what more you need, but I know there is going to be more and we are going to probably get that in one of the final primetime hearings. Um, I, I think that it's also hard for me to answer because I just have this like existential dread that it's not reaching the people that it needs to be reached. Yeah. So I will say day two, Fox did show the hearings with their audio. Oh, wow. Good for Fox. It was also not prime time and at 10 a.m. Yeah. But. I So I, I just kind of, I don't know. I guess the way I'm thinking about this right now is like to me, someone who already very much sees the facts as true. Like I thought they did a really good job of, of laying it out, but it's very difficult to know how many... Americans out there who maybe thought it was real, but, but have since forgotten or people who don't believe it. Um, I don't know how well it's reaching them. Even if I think that the committee is doing a good job by itself, it's just difficult to know, you know, it, it's encouraging that a lot of people tuned in for that first prime time hearing. Uh, hopefully those numbers stay up. Um, but it's just, you know, very difficult to know. And, you know, we can get in this conversation, I think, a little bit more in depth as the hearings go on, but I do have some trust that even if the Justice Department doesn't take up any of it, which I believe it should, but even if it doesn't, um, I do trust that that decision hasn't been made yet. 
I agree. And we'll be right back. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dangerously underscore likely or email us at dangerously likely at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening for notifications of our newest episodes and even the ability to drop us a nice little like or rating some stars. <laughs> Take us on a tangent, Caleb. Well, Terrell, I uh, struggled to find a tangent today because you know what? I think I am just all consumed by whatever content I look at. There's oh, like whenever I go on Twitter, for example, you know, I happen to scroll past many tweets that I'm like, ha ha at, or I'm like, okay at, or I'm like, oh, that's interesting at, but then there's always at least one out there that is, this ends up in my feed. And you know what? You know what? It's always a made up problem. That's getting a lot of likes by one party or the other that, I just don't really understand why we're talking about. So I'm actually going to do something different. I just read a tweet that I thought was kind of funny about Minecraft. The very, actually, I believe it's the most popular video game ever. I think so. And uh, I don't understand why, but I do think so. And uh, it's kind of a funny tweet. So it's by this guy. His handle is uh, Yukon Gold, or that's his name on it. And it's, it reads like this. Today, my seven-year-old came into the room crying. I asked him what happened. And he said that his five-year-old brother put 80 cows in his house in Minecraft while he was offline. And that it was, quote, entirely too many cows. And honest to Christ, I have no idea how to parent any of this. First of all, incredible. Second of all, you know, I am so sorry, Yukon Gold, that you... <laughs> don't know how to parent this i uh i can only hope that that me growing up with minecraft and uh whoever my wife is who will probably also have grown up with minecraft uh know how to parent this did you the answer is always chaos in minecraft did you play minecraft though yeah okay that's all i just oh yeah i've played it before you saying like me growing up with it like I grew up with Minecraft. I also don't know how to handle that situation. I'd just be like, suck it up. Well, that is entirely too many cows. You know, the five-year-old brother is right. Uh, suck it up. So what you do is you literally just move them into <laughs> the other brother's house when they're offline. Or you burn down their house. You know, there's simple ways to go about this. <laughs> just move. It's a video game. You move on. <laughs> what? What are you talking about, Terrell? It's the metaverse. <laughs> anyways take us on a tangent <laughs> my tangent is how stupid that whole little thing was the metaverse <laughs> uh i also i'm struggling with a tangent i'm just gonna finish one thought that came out of our conversation in the main segment because i do think it's important um let's stop giving bill Barr credit <laughs> like so glad that he is willing to talk to the january 6th committee right now and tell us all that he told Donald Trump that his ideas were bullshit. But you know what? Protecting democracy or believing in democracy is quite literally the bare minimum. Anyways. He legitimately stayed in his position long enough to get Donald J. Trump out of any conviction. And even when he left in his resignation letter, 
He just said they had a difference of opinions and he felt the need to leave. However, to the January 6th committee, he said that he felt Donald J. Trump was absent of reality. He had lost it. And at first I took that as a huge headline and super impactful. But what really makes me angry is the fact that we all know, because several members of the cabinet decided to leak this information, that the 25th Amendment was on the precipice of being evoked because really, truly, his cabinet felt he was no longer capable of being president. And Bill Barr said no. So if Bill Barr is now telling us that he felt that the president at that point in time was absent of reality and could not do his duties appropriately, i.e. a peaceful transition of power, he should have allowed for the 25th Amendment to be signed. And he should have said that from day one. So like, let's not do this whole game of because they're saying the truth now, we should be happy. No, he's still a shit person. Especially if you can be a person who argues that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is in the wrong because she didn't step down from the bench early enough. Like, no. Same game. Well, that's our show. (laughs) Um, Thank you for listening as always. I'm Caleb Smith. And I'm Terrell Couch. And we're Dangerously Likely. See you next week. Thank you.